the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 19, Episode 8, Raquel Welch and Stella Stevens. We bid farewell to two Hollywood stars. Talking with Sean Chang of the Hill Place movie and TV blog. Hi, Sean, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me back. We lost Raquel Welch and Stella Stevens this past week. The cover art of today's podcast shows both stars with their children. Tell us about Stella and Raquel and the impact that they had on 1960s and 1970s film. Well, Jim, I think the impact that Raquel Welch made on that particular era is something that we can't even begin to quantify. Between the two women, Raquel was clearly the bigger star, the more famous person. She was possibly, you know, one of the biggest movie stars of the 60s and 70s. She was glamorous. She was beautiful. A term that's constantly used about her and is also used about Stella is that Raquel was a sex symbol And it's something that she wrestled with uh, throughout that early part of her career because she was trying hard to prove she was a serious actress. But ultimately, in the long run, um, even though she wasn't able to prove in the long run she was like Oscar-winning or Oscar-caliber type actress, Raquel had a you know enduring career that lasted from about 1964 to 2017 mm-hmm. when she had her last feature film and a starring role in a short-lived uh, situation comedy called Date My Dad, which lasted 10 episodes. So this is someone who had a 53-year career. Mm-hmm. Stella Stevens, on the other hand, considered at, in that time a leading lady star but she wasn't like the major soul star of her movies the way Raquel sometimes was. There was never any um, Stella Stevens movie that was, you know, where she was the sole main star. But Stella starred opposite many uh, major leading men of the era, including Glenn Ford and Dean Martin and, and, and people of that caliber and worked with some major directors during that time. I forgot to mention Jason Robards as another uh, leading man for Stella Stevens. And Stella worked opposite some major uh, directors of the period, particularly Sam Peckinpah, John Cassavetes, and Vincent Minnelli. And Stella has a classic to her name. She's one of the major characters in the Poseidon Adventure. And she also starred opposite Jerry Lewis in the classic comedy, The Nutty Professor. So they, they both each, in their own ways, had very accomplished careers. And it's ironic that they both passed away in the same week because there were some very strong parallels between the two women in terms mm-hmm. of the, in terms of their backgrounds, their careers. Why don't you share that with us, Sean? Stella was born in Mississippi and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, she got married at the age of 15. Uh, gave birth to a son, an actor and producer, Andrew Stevens, at age 16 and was divorced by 17. And without any connections to the entertainment industry, eventually she was able to come to Hollywood with her young son in tow as a single mother and begin her career around 1958 or 59. First, she was under contract to 20th Century Fox, then to Paramount and then to Columbia. Raquel similarly came to Hollywood with two young children in tow, and she was also a divorced mother. Uh, Raquel uh, was 
born in Chicago, I believe, and raised in La Jolla, California. She was uh, she participated in beauty pageants. She was studying acting at uh, San Diego State University, whereas Stella was studying acting at Memphis State University. And similar to Stella, Raquel eventually came to Hollywood uh, with her children and started getting small parts on television, which eventually led to her landing uh, a movie contract, which led to the movie One Million Years B.C., where she was featured in a classic movie poster in that bikini that you know, made her you know, an iconic figure of both pop culture and cinema. But in the 60s, between the two women, I would say, and this is the irony of the, two, of, of, of the situation, in the 60s, Stella was the more critically respected actress. Uh, Stella Stevens was often seen as somebody who critics often said is, uh, is a very promising actress with great ability who's just looking for that right role. Whereas in contrast, Stella was, I mean, excuse me, Raquel was considered by most critics a competent performer, more, you know, known for her looks than anything else. So it's interesting about that because Raquel was considered the bigger star. But I think some people might think that Stella had the enviable career because she did get to make some films with some major directors. Now, eventually, to give uh, Raquel her due, she made some, you know, memorable movies in the 60s. She was in Fantastic Voyage. She was um, that wonderful comedy with Dudley Moore called Bizette Bedazzled, directed by Stanley Donnan, where she played Lillian Lust, you know, kind of a, you're chuckling as I say that character's name. <laughs> oh, what a name. But, yeah, well, she's basically Lust, and she uh, she, she plays a, a kind of an incarnation of Lust in that movie uh-huh. in a very comedic manner, and she has a Southern accent that's better than uh, Kevin Costner's Southern accent in the film JFK. And and the thing is that, you know, she, she, she constantly worked throughout the 60s, but it wasn't until, I would say, the 70s that Raquel Welch started getting better film roles, which started with a movie that she produced called Kansas City Bomber, where she played a roller derby queen who's a single parent and just trying to, you know, make a way for herself, for both herself and her career and also for her children. She also did uh, Richard uh, Lester's brilliant comedy, action comedy, The Three Musketeers, where she won a Golden Globe Award. Uh-huh. And so by the 70s, you know, her career prospects were starting to improve because Throughout the 60s, she was in movies that were decent films like Bandolero with James Stewart and Dean Martin, but she really wasn't given a chance to really act. She did have the chance to star in that movie version of um, Myra Breckenridge uh, based on the Gore Vidal novel, but that ended up being a big critical and financial flop. But another, another film I, I do want to make the, take the time to mention is that she starred in a, a Western called Hanny Calder, where she plays a woman who her husband's been killed by three outlaws. She's been assaulted by the three outlaws, and she learns um, how to become a gunfighter in order to exact revenge on, on these three men. And that is considered by Quentin Tarantino one of the key films from his childhood that he really reveres. So mm-hmm. she, so by the 70s, her career was improving. She also did a movie called The Last of Sheila, which was a murder mystery um, co-written by Stephen Sondheim with an all-star cast. And she also did a film called The Wild Party, directed by James Ivory, who usually does art films. But the thing about both women is, is that by the late 70s, um, early 80s, their stars started to wane and their careers started to slide slightly through no fault of their own. Um, it's just the entertainment industry is not necessarily sympathetic to actresses who are getting older, but they kept working. They kept working. Mm-hmm. They kept you know, making a name for themselves in the business. But I would have to say, as they got older, and this is the ironic part, because Stella Stevens was considered to be the bettered actress in the beginning. Uh-huh. By, by the 80s and 90s, I think Raquel Welch became the more interesting actress between the two. Stella, I think, 
just kept working. If you look at her IMDb page, she just worked so much that Tom Lasanti joked in the book that he wrote where he profiled her. He didn't interview her. He profiled her. He said that it's great to see Stella Stevens working, but it's clear the word selective is not part of her vocabulary, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> whereas Raquel Welch unfortunately got typecast to a certain degree because of her looks. Yes. But every time she, but every time she did work in the eighties and nineties and the two thousands and the you know, the 2010s, people paid attention. She was always seen as a legend, whether she was doing a television movie or guest starring on a sitcom, people still paid attention. And I think, uh, you know, she became more interesting. She, her on-screen image became one of a wiser woman who learned about life and had wit and intelligence and life experience and was ready to share it with people. That's what she projected in some of her later roles. And I think in real life, which we'll get to in a second, that's how she projected herself in her off-screen image as well. You know, it's interesting. Both of them came to Hollywood with kids. Which, mm-hmm. which is unusual, I guess, for an actress today yes. or, or back, especially back in those days. Number one, yes. number two, both very driven, very ambitious. Neither mm-hmm. of them, them really arrived in Hollywood with a silver spoon in their mouth or with, with any kind of fanta- great connections that, that would have guaranteed their success. I mean, mm-hmm. in both cases, wasn't it, it was really a question of hard work, drive, determination, grit. And, and of course, you know, the lucky break here and there, but neither of them, you know, they weren't Jane Fonda. They didn't have a famous father. They didn't have, yes. uh, they didn't have those kind of entrees. So you have to give them, give them their due there. But on the other hand, during the 1960s, and 1970s, as mm-hmm. uh, feminism became more of a cultural phenomenon and filtered mm-hmm. through in every aspect of, of American life, including the cinema, they were often criticized by feminists. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to, because one thing I wanted to mention, I'm glad that you reminded me about it, is because one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is because the New York Times each wrote different pieces about both women in the last few days, and both pieces I thought were disgraceful in terms of how they characterized them. Mm. Raquel Welch, I mean, there was a general obituary written, but then there was also kind of a editorial about her life written by a, a writer named Rhonda Garalick, who seems to be some sort of intellectual scholar for the newspaper. But she basically, Ms. Garalick, when writing about Raquel Welch, titles the piece Va Va Voom Until the End. For better or worse, Raquel Welch was the rare star who maintained her bombshell status well into her old age. People can go read it and see why I find it so objectionable. But I'll just read you just a, one or two sentences that sure. highlight why. Mm-hmm. In the second paragraph, she starts off by saying, Ms. Welch was not primarily an actress, although she acted in dozens of movies, quote unquote. I'm like, so what is she? Yeah, exactly. Someone that did... She did. Go ahead. Sorry. No, but I mean, how could you? What a silly comment. I mean, how could you be? How could you act in dozens of films and not be an actress? Exactly. And then at the end of it, she talks about the fact that she had a wig line that she hawked on QBC, which really is meant to be demeaning to her. And I want you to remind me about the wig line because there's a point I want to make about it in a moment. But she concludes by saying. Uh, Rhonda Gerlich says, a few notable celebrities have achieved similar longevity. Rita Moreno is a pistol at 90. Ms. Fonda is elegant at 85. Ms. Loren is an elder stateswoman of glamour at 88. But these women do not do va-va-voom any longer. They are not self-conscious commodities or breathing monuments. That title belonged only to Raquel Welch. It may retire with her passing, and that's probably for the best. Which I find 
to be that statement from Miss Garrelick to be so hateful and so disgusting and because con- and condescending, very and condescending. condescending, very condescending. Because I tweeted her and I said to her, and she never responded. That that tweet that last line says, "I don't like what Raquel Welch represents or stands for," and it's good that she's dead. That's how. That's what basically she is saying. And I think particularly the way she made a kind of a comment about the wig line, kind of saying like, oh, women can now basically be like Raquel Welch because of the wig line. And I sent you some uh, some material yeah. about the wig line that really should be highlighted, which was that uh, Welch was known to have donated at least $15 million of her wigs to the American Cancer Society so that they could share it with women who were going through chemotherapy mm-hmm. and suffering from hair loss. Mm-hmm. Okay, And it's because she had a sister and a cousin who basically... She had witnessed how they had gone through a lot of emotional and physical pain because of chemotherapy. And she realized that, you know, having an attractive wig line for them, a wig for them to wear, it gave them one less thing to worry about in terms of how people would perceive them, Mm -hmm. you know, without having lost their hair. So they could focus their attention on getting better and maintaining in a positive mental outlook. And some people might say, you know, because, you know, she talked about this in interviews, like, oh, she's virtue signaling. She's telling the world the good that she's doing. But you know what? When you have donated for at least 15 or so, how many years, at least 15 million dollars of stuff you're putting your, your money where your mouth is mm-hmm. okay so that gives me more that gives her more credibility than people that want to go out there and, and talk about politics but in terms of what feminism did to these women i think that article is a reflection of a, a feminist who's judging raquel welch in a negative manner and also the new york times yesterday did a piece where they read about stella stevens it was written by a man and the gist of the piece was stella stevens wanted to be a director she never got to be a director and that's the whole theme of the of the of the obituary. It ends by talking about how she wanted to direct and never got to. And I think like would they do it for a man to say, oh, let's write about what he didn't accomplish. You know, <laughs> it's it, it, it's like for a newspaper that prides itself on exposing Harvey Weinstein and supposedly being for women, what's really apparent in these two pieces is that the New York Times is only supportive of women if they're of a certain type. Right. And the point I'm trying to get to, and it's a roundabout way and a long-winded way, is that Raquel Welch uh, has said in interviews and said in her memoirs that in the 70s, she found that there were members of the feminist movement, the mainstream feminist movement, who really wanted nothing to do with her. And she found that very curious because she was a working mother, raising her kids, being a business professional, trying to work hard, got into the profession you know, through hard work and tenacity. And because the you know, one million years BC poster image, they just didn't you know, have any interest in her. And she realized that feminism, at least mainstream feminism, or at least the you know, feminist establishment, it's only limited to a certain type of woman. It doesn't mm. extend to all women. And Raquel Welch made it really clear that her brand of feminism, the way she saw it, was about equal pay, equal opportunity, treating people you know, with respect and extending to all women, whether they are women that similar to the kinds of women that one knows in one's life. Mm-hmm. Now, Stella Stevens, I'll have to uh, just share quickly, and I don't want to get too much into this. Years ago, I did interview Stella Stevens at her home for several hours. So I'm talking firsthand about this this individual here with regards to Stella. Uh-huh. And uh, Stella, early in her career, she was a Playboy playmate. Mm-hmm. What she had conveyed to me was was that between the Fox contract and the Paramount contract, she needed money to live on for her and her son. So she agreed to 
was nude uh, for Playboy on, I think, this bearskin rug, and then she was the playmate of January 1960. It's something that she lived to regret because she felt that the playmate image may have held her back in the industry. It might have helped kept people from respecting her fully. Okay, mm-hmm. but the key thing that Stella said to me about it was was that the playmate image in some people's eyes, particularly women, she got regarded and treated as if she were an evil person for having posed nude in Playboy. And she said that there were women that came up to her telling her how much they despised her because they saw her as the kind of woman that would steal their husbands away, away from them. Mm. And she, she just couldn't understand that because that's not what, what who Stella Stevens was or what her goal was. But a lot of women were resentful against her. Both Raquel Welch and Stella Stevens have talked about how, you know, there might have been some chauvinism from men from Hollywood, but they made it really clear that the the challenges they faced weren't just merely from certain men. Mm -hmm. It also came from certain women. Sorry, I cut you off. You you know, they both of these women were were getting attacked on both sides. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had the grit and the determination to fight on and just continue on with uh, great careers, very determined, Mm -hmm. and did Mm -hmm. very well. Both of them were mothers, and both of them had children. Let's talk about their relationship with their children, because juggling family life, children, careers, demanding film careers, how did they do it? And let's, uh, again, there was a reason that you wanted to feature the uh, today's cover art for the podcast with them featured with their children. Tell us about that, Sean. Well, I think it's because they were both single uh, parents trying to raise their kids. But I think ultimately the relationship they had with their kids, each each woman ended up being quite different. I'm going to try to be very careful what I say, because some of it is things I personally knew about Stella Stevens from things I learned from her and things I learned from people who knew and worked with her, who knew about her relationship with her son, Andrew, very, very closely. So out of respect to Andrew Stevens, who I have interviewed for a different reason years ago, and I like and respect him. He's a smart man and a kind man. I want to be very respectful to him. And the point I'm making is, is that I'll start with Raquel Welch, going back to Raquel Welch. Raquel Welch in her later years became a fascinating individual, not just a fascinating actress, but a fascinating person. She gave interviews talking about the lessons she's learned in life, the things that she wanted to be as an older person. And one of the key things is that, to be quite honest, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, Jim, Raquel Welch did not have a good professional reputation. She was seen as being high maintenance, seen as temperamental. Some of it might be chauvinism in terms of judging a woman differently than judging a man in the similar circumstances. But I do think there is some truth that she behaved in a way that a lot of people would find unappealing. A, a friend of mine directed Raquel in a movie. He liked her overall. And this was a movie in the late 60s. And he respected her as a person, as an actress. But he said that her insecurities got in the way and it caused her to behave in a way where she was temperamental. She wasn't easy. And mm-hmm. she was comp- she was competitive with another actress in the film. Now, flash forward 15 years later, and just very briefly, because I don't want to turn this into a different subject, Raquel got fired from a movie called Cannery Row that MGM was producing in 1980. The studio was making her a scapegoat for the rising production costs and the late schedule of that movie because the director was inexperienced. Um, You can read the written decision, Raquel Welch versus MGM, if you Google it, and it's fascinating, the facts behind that case. But the producer and the studio head, the jury ultimately decided it made her a scapegoat by making it seem as if she was unprofessional and showing up late 
And they even told the press that. And what ended up happening, Jim, is that her movie career was never the same again. Mm. What ended up happening is, is that she could never star in a major film from a major studio again. But what she did was she soon afterwards, a year and a half later, was on Broadway replacing uh, Lauren Bacall in the musical Woman of the Year for six months. And she got rave reviews and mm. the public really embraced her. And she has said in interviews that that success gave her the confidence she'd always been looking for and a little bit more assurance so that the poster from from one million years bc didn't bother her anymore and i think when someone gets older and they get wiser and more relaxed they basically try to be better people because uh, when she died and even before then i would hear this about her jim her, her professional reputation in the last 20 25 years uh, went from being not good in the 60s and 70s to being excellent. People talked about who worked with her, what a kind person she was, how generous she was, that she was a team player, particularly to young people and young women. I mean, this was not a Joan Crawford who felt threatened by a younger woman and would try to do things to sabotage a younger woman. Actresses like Alicia Silverstone, who worked with her, it would basic, and Reese Witherspoon, another person would say, you know, how kind she was to them when they had worked with her. So I think it, we saw somebody that grew up and also in her memoirs and also in interviews, she really was reflective about her sex symbol image and also about her relationship with her children, which is what I was getting at. So apologies for taking a long way to get to it. She really wanted to make amends to her children because she acknowledged in interviews in later years that she really was not the best mother that she could be. Not a terrible mother that was abusive at all, nothing like that, but just she wasn't there when 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 they needed her. And she really wanted in her later years to really build a strong relationship and spend her entire life making amends to them and also making amends to other people that she may not have been great to. So I, that's, that's why I think Raquel Welch ended up being a fascinating person as mm -hmm. an individual. Mm -hmm. I think, if anything, Raquel Welch in her later years should have created her own podcast to tell you the truth because <laughs> i think her way of relating to people in in different circumstances and talk shows and stuff was fascinating to observe i'll give you an example she was on this talk show to promote a cable movie she did and the women around the table because that cbs show the talk were saying congratulations on your new movie and she said now first of all she said it's not my movie it's gina gershon she plays the lead. I play her aunt. And it's a wonderful character role. But it's really Gina Gershon's movie. And I really want it made clear it's not my movie. The Raquel Welch of the 60s and 70s would never have said something so selfless like that. Do yes. you get what I'm saying? Of course. Of course. But to make things clear. But I think with Stella Stevens, in contrast, is that Stella Stevens, from what I understand, did not maintain a strong relationship with her son in the later years. Mm. And, and that's the thing that I think is um, unfortunate. Even before she passed away and developed Alzheimer's, my understanding is that they weren't close to each other. And to be candid, my impression of Stella is that she was very career-driven. Mm -hmm. I liked her as a person, but in talking to her, I didn't get the impression that there was anything more important in her life and her career, whereas I never met or interviewed Raquel Welch. But I do think that ultimately in life, Welch realized that there was more important things in life than just basically being an actress and a successful actress. Mm. Well, in, in a sense, uh, again, two women of, of the same era who started off with very similar uh, starting points in their careers, but uh, later in life, they they matured into two very different people, which is, which is the way of the world. No, very much so. Well, what do you think is the legacy of these uh, of these two women and the 1960s, 1970s uh, films? Because at this point, you know, we're some 50, 60 years on from mm -hmm. uh, from that era. 
and it's hard to believe, but we are 50, 60 years on from that era. Both of them played roles. Both of them acted in films that, that are iconic films of that era. Do you think that both of them have left a lasting imprint on the, on the culture of the film culture of the 60s and 70s? Absolutely, because I'm going to tell you, in the last few days since um, the passing of both women, people who would be called cineasts have been really heartbroken. Raquel Welch and Stella Stevens are actresses that meant a lot to people. Even the most, some of those serious film scholars were really sorry uh, to see, you know, to hear about their passing. I, to tell you the truth, um, am still shaken up by Raquel Welch's passing because she always seemed like such a strong, healthy, confident person. I'd heard through the grapevine that Stella Stevens had not been well for a while with Alzheimer's. So in a way that that didn't surprise me as much. But the Raquel passing really did shake me up in a way that, you know, that I can't quantify to you. People will remember her, you know, Raquel, that is, for one million years B.C., of course. But I really, you know, want to direct people to the performance that she gave in uh, Richard Lester's Three Musketeers. She's a bit of a klutz in the movie, but she is such a natural, funny klutz that an actress that critics years earlier would say was stiff and unemotional and whatever, she proved them wrong with that film. And I also think that The Last of Sheila is a great you know, murder mystery. Um, Kansas City Mott Bomber, you know, she gives a very gritty performance. There's another film that she did. I told you um, the, the, the artistic film, uh, The Wild Party by James Ivory, where I think she's quite good in it as well. And the, the thing about James Ivory is, is that he said during the making of that film how difficult she was to work with on that film because mm -hmm. she was so high maintenance. But I noticed on Facebook, there were two people who worked with her on it. One was a bit player and one, one was a guy who was just passing by and ended up getting hired for the film. And they talked um, in the last few days on social media about how kind she was to them. So, you know, as long as she didn't punch downward like Marilyn Monroe could, but punched upwards to movie directors or producers, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. And there was also, I think I sent you a, a wonderful piece written by a stage director in England who's yes. a well-respected yes, a, a well stage director who started out as an actor who was acting in a play. His name is Christopher, Christopher Luscombe, I believe. Yes. They were doing, uh, they were doing an, a tour throughout England of The Millionaires, the George Bernard Shaw play. And he did a piece in the Daily Telegraph of London to talk about how when Raquel arrived to do the play in 1995, there was a bit of a star quality to her. She was late to rehearsals the first day by two hours, but once she showed up, she was very nice and people liked her, but they all realized that this was a film star who was not stage trained in the sense of doing a, a classic play. Yes. And they, they were concerned about whether she could pull it off um, and after the first performance, the reaction from the audience was so bad, there was some concern. <laughs> so they, the producers asked, like, what can we do to help you? And she wanted Christopher Luscombe, who was acting in the play in a supporting role, to help her with her scenes. And so he, they hired him to, in addition to playing his role, working with her to work on her scenes to help, you know, as a kind of a dialogue coach, yes. whatever. And this very renowned stage director said that that was the beginning of his career as a stage director because he was working with her and that during the course of the tour, the, the whole cast of these very respected stage trained actors saw her growing as an actor in front of them and becoming a real team player. Mm -hmm. And that after the play was over, they stayed friends and, and he really grew to respect her. And that peace does start off a little snarky. You, you think that he's just kind of putting her down, mentioning, you know, like she's late and that she brought all that luggage from Hollywood and stuff. But then you realize all he's doing is he's just laying out people's perceptions of her at first. 
you know, and then they realized, oh no, she's got more to offer than that. And I think, I think uh, for Welch, who was not as prolific as Stella Stevens, I think it's too bad that in her later years, she couldn't find that great vehicle for her because it always seemed like she was able and ready and game for it. Stella's legacy is three films and they're all good films. Four films, excuse me. One is uh, Too Late Blues, which is a very dark drama. Another one is uh, Jerry Lewis's The Nutty Professor. Another one is a romantic Western that's a little bit comedic at times called The Ballad of Cable Hoag, starring Jason Robards. And she told me that the great Jason Robards was a great stage actor. She told me that he called her Sarah Siddons. Sarah Siddons was a great stage actress herself. And that was his nickname to her. And that was his way of telling Stella how much he respected her as an actress. And also the final film is, is the classic, The Poseidon Adventure. I mean, each woman in their own different way. They were incredibly different actresses. I don't even know if they even crossed paths or, you know, ran in the same circles. They probably met at social functions, but I don't get the impression they ran in the same circles. But they both left behind a lasting legacy in film that uh, should be remembered. Because I'll just conclude by simply saying this. They're both fascinating women. I think Raquel seems, seems to have a little more substance than Stella, and I'm just coming to that from my personal encounter with Stella. Stella was a smart woman, a bright woman, but I just think Raquel seems more interesting. But both women are vastly more interesting than the woman I was talking about two weeks ago, Andrea Riseborough. Yeah. You know, that, that actress that got nominated for Two Leslie, who I'm not a fan of because she gets pretentious interviews, she gave a rambling interview this week to justify her Oscar nomination and to also... Uh, try to brush off the accusations of racial bias by telling the Hollywood Reporter something to the effect of, um, I'm paraphrasing, yes, a dialogue has been opened about this. It's an important dialogue that we should be having. And, you know, and, and it's good that we're having it, but it's not my place to say anything about it. I'm just here to sit and listen and to learn. And I'm just reading it thinking, you know what? You have offered nothing original, nothing thoughtful, you know, nothing articulate the way like a Raquel Welch has about just talking about life and talking about things in a way that people can relate to. It's like what I find interesting about these feminists who laud uh, serious actresses like an Andrea Riseborough is that they would look at Andrea Riseborough, who does serious movies and studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and think that they ha- that she has more substance than a Raquel Welch or a Stella Stevens. But if you compare the quotes and interviews from Raquel, from Andrea Riseborough versus Raquel Welch and Stella Stevens, it's Andrea Riseborough who comes across as the true dimwit and airhead. Okay, mm-hmm. and Raquel Welch and Stella Stevens come across as people with street smarts and life experience. That's the thing I find ironic about certain feminists out there who want to judge people. It's like if they want to judge people on the surface, you know, and they think that. Beautiful women, it, they're all surface, but they also judge people on the surface by thinking that Andrea Riseborough has sus- substance when I think, in my opinion, she does not. Well, Sean, on that note, in the closing moments of the podcast, do you have any, is there any actress out there today for the millennials, for folks who are in their 20s and 30s, who, <laughs> who might um, parallel Raquel Welch, say the Raquel Welch of, uh, for the millennials, or is, or is that era gone? I don't think that era is gone. I mean, some people try to make an analogy that the only person now that has that kind of iconic status is like Kim Kardashian, but that's ridiculous to even yeah. say that. Oh, you yeah. know, I, I don't think she's, there, you know, she's anything like that because, first of all, she's she's a shrewd business person, but she's not an actress. Right. Okay. 
I think our favorite, Anna de Armas, who started Blonde. She's a beautiful, talented actress who is incredibly photogenic, but also, you know, has something interesting going on underneath, inside, in her heart and her soul. So I, I would basically uh, say that maybe Anna de Armas has a similar quality to her. In terms of Stella Stevens, Stella Stevens was sort of like a whimsical, comedic, brassy, blonde type. And I don't know. I don't know if there's anyone quite like that now. And maybe because there's not anyone that's exactly like Raquel Welch or Stella Stevens that yes. uh, highlights how unique they were. So just I'll just close on that note. Well, Sean, as always, we appreciate your in-depth profiles, both of these two stars and of, of other stars and other films that you review on a regular basis here at the San Francisco Experience. Once again, Sean, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for finding time to do a podcast about Raquel Welch and Stella Stevens. I appreciate it. My pleasure. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 373, as the San Francisco Experience marks its third anniversary. You can listen, along with listeners in 65 different countries, you can listen to the San Francisco Experience on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, and 19 platforms in total. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Mm-hmm.